This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania, the podcast that tells the story of civil liberties. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. Pennsylvania has one of the largest populations of people serving life without the possibility of parole in the nation and in the world. Approximately 5,300 people are serving LWAP, which activists call Death by Incarceration, or DBI. That accounts for approximately 10% of all people serving the sentence nationwide. Philadelphia alone has more people serving death by incarceration than any country in the world. The Abolitionist Law Center is a prisoner's rights legal advocacy group based in Pittsburgh. ALC and ACLUPA are frequent collaborators in litigation against inhumane prison conditions. In a recent report called A Way Out, Abolishing Death by Incarceration in Pennsylvania, ALC crunched the numbers, and the numbers are startling. In this episode, I talk with Quinn Cousins, a staff attorney at ALC and co-author of the report. Quinn and I talk about what the report shows, the massive increase in people serving DBI over the last 40 years, and the way forward to ending this extreme sentence. Here we go. Quinn, the Abolitionist Law Center just released a new report on death by incarceration. Before we get into the report, though, I wanted to ask you um, to talk a little bit about the work of the Abolitionist Law Center. What do you all do? Sure. So the Abolitionist Law Center is a public interest law firm uh, based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Our ultimate goal and uh, purpose is to fight against and end class and race-based mass incarceration. Um, so we started in 2013 and have been doing that work ever since. Essentially, we uh, work with incarcerated people for the most part and their, their family members, uh, litigating some cases around prison conditions such as solitary confinement, uh, medical care, um, and also doing work on uh, criminal appeals and sentencing issues. So yeah, that's a, a general overview of what we do, um, sort of. A little bit more behind our purpose um, is we consider ourselves to be movement lawyers, which uh, for us means that we are um, hold ourselves accountable to and take leadership from movements around changing the criminal legal system, first and foremost from incarcerated people who are often the leaders of those movements on the outside, as well as, as their families and others who are impacted by the system. And we uh, focus on working with um, rather than for these people. So again, that means taking into account their leadership, really being driven by and listening to and taking into account their, uh, what they need in order to help their, help their movements flourish and, um, using, you know, litigation, legal avenues as a means of, of furthering those goals. And, you know, Quinn, uh, language is important. The way we frame these issues matters. Uh, you all use the word abolitionist in, in your name. Um, sometimes people if they hear abolitionists, they might think of slavery. Some people might think of death penalty abolitionists. Um, in the context of the work that ALC does, what does abolitionist mean? In the context of the Abolitionist Law Center, ALC, that just reflects our, our commitment to abolishing the system of um, mass incarceration, both here in Pennsylvania and in, in the United States more broadly, and transitioning away from incarceration as a way of addressing what are fundamentally social problems and intercommunal problems, 
So mass incarceration has obviously gotten a lot more attention in the last decade or so. And uh, we are both inspired by those who um, have been working against the system for, for decades and are currently involved in, in that work. And really at its, at its core, um, we see abolitionism as a way of uh, transforming society, uh, moving towards more restorative ways of addressing harms that are caused, both restoring the person who was harmed and the a person who caused harm, as well as just transitioning away from using prisons as institutions of social control and ways of, of dealing with those problems. So rather than in inflicting punishment, um, we should be, you know, seeking to address the more of the root causes of these issues and then dealing with them in ways that are, are more productive than simply isolating somebody and separating them from society without any further you know, services or reflection on, on what that is doing to both the people who are directly involved in whatever harm was caused, as well as the, the broader community itself. All right, so let's talk about the report. Uh, in the mainstream parlance, the sentence this report examines is called life without parole. And ALC and other activists refer to it as death by incarceration. Why do you use that alternative description? Right, so there are essentially three reasons for referring to it by as death by incarceration. The first is that it's the preferred term of those who we work with who are incarcerated, um, who are serving these sentences. And since, as I mentioned before, we uh, consider ourselves a, a movement-lawyering organization that are accountable to these movements, we you know, reflect the language that, that they select to use themselves. Second, it focuses on the... Um, ultimate fact of the sentence and its effect, which is that we are locking people in cages until they die. Outside of some extraordinary relief, such as computation, which has uh, virtually disappeared over the last several decades, people are spending decades upon decades of their lives, often from the times they're very young, in cages, uh, just, you know, awaiting death, essentially. And then third is that death by incarceration uh, invokes the social death that is experienced by those who are incarcerated under the sentence because they're, they're subjected to a degraded legal status, uh, have diminished rights, they're generally excluded from most social and political life, and again, are, are warehoused for decades um, inside prisons. And then uh, a fourth reason, I know I mentioned that there were three, but an another reason that we use death by incarceration is because it's slightly broader than the term life without parole. Again, this refers not only to life without parole sentences, but also our concerns with sentences that may have a term of years attached to it, but ultimately provide no avenue for somebody to demonstrate rehabilitation, transformation, and have a chance to be returned to their communities. So this uh, report focuses exclusively on life without parole sentences. Um, the term death by incarceration can refer to other sentences that have the same effect. So, Quinn, the report refers to DBI as a failed policy. Why is that? What were the key findings in your research? We refer to it as a failed policy because it essentially accomplishes none of the purported goals of the criminal legal system and as well has harmful effects on both those serving it and uh, the larger communities and families. 
So some of the things that we note in the report is that uh, death by incarceration is, is not necessary to ensure or increase public safety, which is one of the oft-repeated policy objectives of these sentences. So research has consistently shown that the strongest predictor for whether a person is likely to commit a future criminal offense or commit some type of harm is age. Um, and locking, you know, at, at this point, thousands of, of people who are growing older um, up for even longer periods of time is not furthering the, the goal of public safety because, quite frankly, there is very little chance that most folks are, are likely to engage in this behavior, just both statistically speaking and um, in terms of actual studies that have been done um, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. So um, in Pennsylvania, there's a study There's a study commission that found that uh, people who were 50 or older when they were released from prison in 2003 in Pennsylvania, only 1.4% of those were convicted of any new crime within 22 months of their release, which was the entire length of the, the study period. Um, when it comes to death by incarceration sentences in particular, out of those whose sentences have been commuted, um, particularly those whose sentences were commuted when um, commutation was used much more frequently in prior to the 1980s, roughly 1% of those were reincarcerated after their commutation. So again, this is just a little bit of data to back up what is uh, generally supported in most of the research, which is that by the time people reach the age of 40, they've pretty much aged out of engaging in most of the harmful behavior that, you know, perhaps got them into the sentence in the first place. Another reason we call it a failed policy is that uh, it's uh, simply a waste of resources. The cost of incarcerating somebody permanently, permanently for the rest of their life um, in an ever-growing population of people sentenced to death by incarceration um, puts a huge strain on the budget. Again, to um, speak a little bit to uh, the aging population of people serving DBI sentences, um, costs increase greatly as they grow older. And while these resources are being spent on keeping people in cages, uh, they could be used for um, you know, a number of other public and social services, such as education, medical and mental health services, um, and in fact, creating more processes and services for those who are victims of violence or who lose loved ones to, to violence. Um, and that sort of brings me to my next point, which is that uh, death by incarceration is often purported to be the best uh, sentence to serve victims who have lost family members or loved ones to violence. And this is, an, you know, obviously an understandable response to anybody who, who loses someone to violence but in fact is not reflective of all of those who lose loved ones to violence. Many people you know, support policy responses that emphasize preventing um, further harm from, from being perpetrated or rehabilitating folks that offend in some way. And again, uh, often DBI is used as a um, surrogate for other services that could be used to help people heal such as trauma counseling, grief counseling, um, and more material support for them. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, the effect on, you know, broader social policies, it's uh, also harmful to those who are incarcerated under the sentence, their families and their communities. You know, we're removing people from the communities for the rest of their lives. And, 
you know, families pay a high emotional and economic cost in supporting their loved ones, um, and it totally denies what is, I think, the reality of uh, possibilities of redemption and transformation for those who have committed some type of harm, typically early in their lives. But more than that, death by incarceration is just a pillar of Pennsylvania's system of mass incarceration. The practice of caging people until death is both the most extreme and um, also the most exemplary feature of a system that seeks primarily to inflict maximal punishment um, and functions largely to exclude and stigmatize communities of color and poor people. We saw in the data that black folks in Pennsylvania are 18 times more likely than white people to be serving a death by incarceration sentence. Latinx folks are more than five times likely than white people to be serving this sentence. And these uh, disparities are even greater than among the general prison population itself. You said a couple of things there I want to pull on a little bit. One is this idea that people age out of this harmful behavior, that the data just shows that the kind of behavior that lands people in prison is typically committed by younger people, young adults. And and, and then related to that uh, is this idea that this is some kind of help to victims, which is certainly a fallacy. And your report even quotes at least one uh, a survivor uh, whose, whose loved one was killed. Um, saying that this is not something that she finds particularly helpful. And there are even commutation cases where someone comes up in front of the pardons board and the um, victim's family members are testifying in their favor. It seems like really the only thing the government is left with at that point, and by the government I'm talking about law enforcement agencies in particular, is retribution. Um, and your report talks a little bit about that. I mean, isn't that really the case? I mean, there's no public safety argument for it. You have mixed opinions among victims' family members, and really that all that's left is retribution. Yeah, and really retribution is, you know, the idea that those who cause harm should, you know, have some harm caused onto them in proportion to, you know, the, the harm that they inflicted. So essentially it's the ethic of vengeance. And, you know, we feel here and a lot of those we work with and I believe, you know, everyone should feel that that's not sufficient to, that's not a, a sufficient motivation to incarcerate somebody for the rest of their life. The heart of our report really is the um, third section, which uh, features the voices of those who are serving the sentence. In the process of constructing the report, we sent about 100 questionnaires into people who are serving death by incarceration sentences with a number of open-ended questions about their life, about their feelings, about their sentence, and we got over 40 responses to that. Um, we didn't feature all of those responses in the report, but focused on um, a number who were what we felt were representative of sort of the overall responses. It was extremely striking, and I encourage anybody who wants to read the report, if you only read one one part of it, to uh, skip to section three. But it's, it's striking how many people um, who are serving the sentence want nothing more than one, to be reunited with their families, and two, to um, use their lives in some way to benefit others. So many people want to work with youth, work with children in an attempt to prov uh, provide guidance to them. A number of people raised the point that we you know, know, know what people um, are growing up with, know the challenges they face. Um, we've lived their experiences, and then we've lost a tremendous amount. And because of that, they can give great guidance to folks. Um, a number of people have been doing this work on the inside already. 
have been, you know, have started restorative justice programs where they work with people in prison who have harmed others and take them through a process of reconciling that harm, taking accountability for it, and attempting to atone, atone for it in whatever way they can to, um, as one person put it, make their wrongs more right. Now, of course, with uh, losing a loved one, that can never be replaced. But for many of these folks, that's their primary motivation in how to um, to live their lives going forward, both in prison and when they get out, is to you know seek to make their wrongs more right. So really, the uh, retribution, the the ethic of vengeance in this case is simply excessive. You know, one of the things we, we highlight in the report as well is how extreme of an outlier the United States in general is, as well as, as Pennsylvania is, in inflicting this punishment on people. There are very few countries across the world that even allow life without parole sentences. I think um, 155 out of 193 United Nations member nations um, prohibit life without parole sentences. Um, it's virtually unheard of in the rest of the Americas, both North and South. In Europe, it's extremely rare as well. Next to the United States, which has over 53,000 people serving death by incarceration, the next three highest countries combined have less than 150 people serving the sentence. And Pennsylvania stakes a strong claim as, as the national leader, both in terms of overall people, where it's second only to Florida, who has twice the incarcerated population and overall population at Pennsylvania, and in the proportion of its population that is sentenced to this. So there's really no explanation for why Pennsylvania should be such an outlier, why the United States should be such an outlier when other places around the world and even around the country are able to find what they believe to be more proportional responses to serious harms that are caused. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one thing I want anybody listening to this to understand is this: the idea of getting rid of death by incarceration is not some radical idea. In fact, getting rid of it would be very mainstream when you look at it on a global scale. So, one of the, you know, as someone who's been around these issues for a while, much of what was in the report was not surprising to me. But the one thing that did really stuck out for myself was the progression of the death by incarceration population in Pennsylvania. It's, it's been astounding. In 1974, there were less than 500 people serving this sentence in Pennsylvania. In 1990, there were 2,139. And by last year, there were 5,346 people serving death by incarceration in the Commonwealth. And as you just said, that's, that's 10% of the entire population um, serving the sentence in the country. Now, of course, this increase happened at the same time that the overall prison population was increasing. And a lot of people attribute that increase to the war on drugs, changes in sentencing, um, harsher, more extreme sentencing that was implemented in the 80s and 90s. But Pennsylvania has had death by incarceration as an available sentence for nearly a century. So my question is, and maybe there's no answer. I don't know, but I'll, I'll put it in front of you anyway. To what do you attribute this huge increase? The increase is a tenfold increase over 43 years. You know, it's, it's difficult to pinpoint one reason in particular, um, but I think there are a number of explanations, all of which sort of intersect with each other. And as you mentioned, uh, reflect the more, I guess, punitive political shift in the later decades of the 20th century. The one is the, the nature of itself, of the sentence itself, obviously, which is, you know, that 
people are incarcerated until until death. So as more people come into the system, nobody else is, is leaving. So the numbers are just going to keep increasing and increasing over time. Um, one of the primary factors, though, is the decrease in use of commutation. So while Pennsylvania has had this sentence on the books since the 1940s, which is longer than almost any other other state in the country, the there's a general expectation that at some point a person sentenced to death by incarceration would have their sentence commuted by the governor. Um, the process for that is that you know somebody applies for commutation, they go before the the board of pardons, typically a, a, a five member board. Think over the history of it, and they vote on whether to recommend the commutation application to the governor and the governor um, either signs off or doesn't. Uh, commutations were sort of granted as a, as a matter of course over the, the early decades of the sentence. Um, in 1971, for instance, there were 498 people sentenced to death by incarceration in Pennsylvania. That year alone, 38 people were released on commutation. That's over 7% of the total population of people that were serving life without parole. Since Tom Ridge uh, was elected governor in, in Pennsylvania and started his term in 1995, only eight people have received commutation in over 20 years. Mm. So that, again, is a, a huge factor, um, both in terms of the number of people whose sentences are being commuted, um, as well as uh, in relation to the overall population of people who are serving the sentence. So, you know, for example, in the, the 1970s overall, there were over 200 people that had their 200 people that had their sentences commuted and were released. The average population of people serving death by incarceration over that that decade was uh, just under 800. So today, if you're looking at, you know, commuting even 7% of the the population as was done in 1971, we look at we're looking at um, over 400 people having their sentences commuted this year alone which is just inconceivable in today's political climate and with the uh, structure of the commutation process now, which is, has changed since it was first implemented to make it more difficult for people to obtain commutation. Uh, another reason that we can, we can point to um, potentially that uh, goes along with the more punitive shift is the charging decisions and the way that prosecutors approach uh, homicide cases. So, you know, this is something that um, is difficult to gather data on. However, uh, you know, anecdotally, listening to people's stories, we have heard a number of people who were convicted of what is now second-degree homicide or felony murder, where they participated in a, a felony in which somebody died, and as a result of that, are uh, sentenced to life in prison, where um, they were convicted in the 1980s, and today, you know, you would see that as a straightforward first-degree murder conviction with no questions asked. And again, that's largely due to prosecutors' charging decisions, the way they approach these cases and present them to juries. And again, that reflects sort of the more punitive shift in trying to seek the maximal punishment. You know, in Philadelphia, during the 1980s, the district attorney uh, was or I'm sorry, during the 1990s and 2000s, the district attorney was um, Lynn Abraham, who Time Magazine once called America's deadliest DA because of the number of death penalty sentences that uh, her office obtained during that time. That also reflected a, a noticeable increase in death by incarceration sentences during her time as district attorney. Um, and I think, 
you know, again, it's, it's, it's hard to have data to reflect this, but as prosecutors seek convictions more aggressively, for instance, this, what could otherwise be a second-degree or third-degree murder conviction um, will be viewed now as a, a first-degree murder conviction. Some of just as, as a side note, you know, while the death by incarceration population has been increasing in Pennsylvania, you know, we've actually seen a, a decrease in violent crime. So between 2003 and 2015, I believe there was a 21% decrease in violent crime in Pennsylvania, while the population of people serving death by incarceration increased by 40% over that time. Um, so there's obviously a mismatch there between crime rates and uh, the number of people that are being sent away under a death by incarceration sentence. But overall, I think it's, it's although the um, the sentences are often imposed mandatorily, which is you know, another factor in why there are so many sentences, is that judges don't have the discretion to sentence people to something less than life without parole. It is also just generally a reflection of the more punitive shift in approaches to the criminal legal system, um, both in terms of commutation no longer being available and charging decisions of prosecutors. Yeah, and you mentioned, as you mentioned, the commutation process, we just had news earlier in September of a man from Harrisburg who's now 57 years old trying to get a commutation recommendation. Uh, He was 19. He's been in prison since he was 19, and he got a majority vote from the pardons board, uh, but he did not get a unanimous vote. The attorney general, Josh Shapiro, and a former county uh, corrections official who um, sits on the board uh, voted against him. It was three to two. The DOC secretary was in his favor, uh, favored a commutation for him, but he couldn't get the recommendation sent to the governor because he didn't have the unanimous vote. Right, and that was, um, you know, so prior to 1997, when the Pennsylvania Constitution was changed after a push by the Ridge administration to get it on the ballot. A majority vote of the Board of Pardons was all that was necessary for a recommendation to go to the governor, where the governor would ultimately make the decision whether to sign or not. So not only is that you know the process more onerous now, but we're seeing even fewer uh, people having their cases considered by the Board of Pardons, and you know obviously fewer recommendations going to the governor. But yes, yeah, it's, it's the process itself is stacked against those applying for commutation. Um, even though they have been in for decades and have exemplary records. And really, again, there's no argument posed, no risk to public safety. And we've also seen some some shifting rationales for why these votes are coming out this way. For example, um, Attorney General Shapiro, as you mentioned, has you know been fairly consistently voting against these commutation applications despite running on a, a reform platform and is sort of alternatingly given reasons uh, such as the, uh, you know, it couldn't go against the the wishes of of the victim in one case while ignoring the wishes of the victim in another case um, in which they were in favor of commutation of the person who was responsible for or involved in in killing their loved one. In other cases, he's, you know, pinned that on the recommendation of the district attorney prosecuting the case Again, they're, they're shift, shifting rationales that are really tough to pin down, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of become a political issue uh, where, you know, I think those with political aspirations are re- reluctant to grant a commutation in the event that, you know, that, that person, the unlikely event, as we discussed with the data, that that person 
reoffends in some way and it comes back on them a la um, Willie Horton and it's turned into a political issue that affects their political career. So what's the way forward? Does the path to ending death by incarceration go straight through the legislature? Sure. So that's, um, you know, this is ultimately a, a problem created by the legislature in the sentencing scheme. Um, so the most direct way of addressing that and ending death by incarceration is through the legislature. Um, there are several bills that are, have been proposed right now in the uh, both the House and Senate in Pennsylvania. Um, one of them is House Bill 135, um, which was submitted by Representative Jason Dawkins from Philadelphia. Uh, the other is Senate Bill 942, which was uh, presented by Senator Sharif Street, um, also from Philadelphia. Uh, both of these bills would um, enable uh, anybody given a life sentence to be considered by the parole board for release after serving 15 years of their sentence. Um, those bills um, haven't moved out of committee yet. Um, that is the most direct way, as I said, of addressing and ending death by incarceration. Um, however, it's not the only way, and you know we identified several ways um, in the report that um, you know ending this sentence in Pennsylvania uh, can be achieved, and ultimately it's going to be a multi a faceted multi-strategy approach um, that will that will end this sentence. Um, but uh, first and, and foremost, we identified that uh, this needs to be a movement-based approach, um, one that is rooted in organizing um, specific and diverse constituencies of those you know most impacted, both the incarcerated people and their families, um, as well as those who just generally support, you know shifting towards a more restorative criminal legal system and ending mass incarceration to uh, both shape and change public opinion as well as inspire political action. And, you know, beyond legislation, there are, um, you know, uh, challenges that we can, can raise in courtrooms as well. Um, we're pursuing several cases that seek to apply a recent uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, Miller versus Alabama, which um, prohibits the imposition of mandatory life without parole sentences like we have here in Pennsylvania on those who were um, 18 and under at the time of their offense, or I'm sorry, under 18 at the time of their offense. You know, recent social and neuroscientific developments show that you know, the uh, adolescent development doesn't, doesn't end when you turn 18, right? Um, yeah. That's just sort of common sense. Those who have experienced that time in their life should know, you know, as you grow older, your thought processes develop, your decision-making ability, your ability to resist peer pressure, things like that. So the same factors that make life without, mandatory life without parole unconstitutional for those under 18 um, also apply to those over 18. And that's just sort of a way of chipping away at death by incarceration sentences. But it would have an effect. You know, one of the data points that that we gathered um, showed that a, a, about a quarter of those that are serving death by incarceration sentences were between the ages of 18 and 21 when they entered the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania. So that's a, a pretty substantial uh, portion of the, the population where if that you know, sort of challenge is successful, it could potentially be affected and have an opportunity for release. Another is by you know attempting to change the culture in district attorney's offices. So one of the 
potential causes of the rise of death by incarceration sentences I talked about earlier was the politics of prosecutors and their charging decisions and the way that they prosecute cases. So, you know, both influencing the way that that process happens on the front end, as well as reviewing excessive sentences and perhaps, you know, convictions that were obtained above the actual level of intent of the person that was involved. Um, so instituting something like a sentencing review unit. Um, we've seen conviction review units pop up across the country, including in Philadelphia, where um, Larry Krasner was recently elected to review um, wrongful convictions. You know, we believe that as well, district attorneys should be reviewing excessive sentencing and looking for ways uh, in which those who were sentenced excessively for legal mechanisms for, for their release or opportunity for release at some point in the future. And then one other potential avenue is, again, going back to commutation, to change that process to enable a more fair um, and less politically charged look at whether somebody who has been serving a death by incarceration sentence is ready um, and able to return home. So right now, as I mentioned, there's, there was a constitutional amendment to change the process for how that happened. Um, we think one particular uh, policy change that would be helpful in reducing the population of those sentenced to death by incarceration is a policy of presumptive parole or presumptive commutation, excuse me, um, yeah. where the Board of Pardons would uh, presumably recommend the commutation of um, the person applying for it um, unless there are, are some reason, there is some reason for them to, um, you know, think that that wouldn't be in the interest of public safety or any of the other considerations that they are supposed to enter into in, in making those determinations. Yeah. So um, there, you know, there are a number of approaches to both chipping away at and um, ultimately ending altogether uh, death by incarceration sentences. But you know, as I mentioned in the beginning, the the legislature is um, ultimately where ultimately where this this sentence will end. So I want to finish our discussion by talking about the beginning of the report, which is the dedication. Uh, this report is dedicated to three groups of people, people who are serving death by incarceration, people who have lost a loved one to violence, and people who, and I'm quoting from the report here, have experienced both sides of this painful dynamic. And to those who are serving, the dedication says, you are not forgotten. To those who have lost someone to violence, it says this. To those who have suffered the immeasurable grief and pain of losing a loved one to violence, we seek a change that will address the root causes of such devastation. We gently offer this work as an alternative to those who pursue a perpetual condemnation that all too often stands in the way of healing. Community, justice, and healing require us to give all of ourselves and aspire to be more individually and collectively than we have yet become. We are committed to walking this path with you, close quote. Now, I've read a lot of reports. The data, the findings often move me to anger or sadness, but I can't recall reading a report with a statement that has that kind of power. Why was it important to you and to the team at ALC to include that? Yeah, so ultimately that reflects um, our organizational values of building a better world and one that is centered on the values that we express there. Community justice and healing, um, addressing the root causes of harm that we cause to each other um, and suffer at the hands of each other. 
and ultimately seeking responses to those types of harm that are restorative, that seek to heal um, rather than simply punish, and that are um, will ultimately, you know, make us all stronger and seek to prevent those harms from occurring in the future. Um, and also, we, you know, of course, our, our report is primarily focused on um, the sentence itself, but we, you know, always need to. We always need to maintain a focus on those who lose loved ones to violence as well. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, many of those who are serving this sentence are fully committed to building that world that um, I was speaking of earlier, where we seek um, you know, more restoration and healing. And that's ultimately at the root of what we're seeking to address um, when we call for this, this sentence to be abolished. So, Quinn, where can people go to get more information? Uh, sure. So our report is online um, on our website at um, abolitionistlawcenter.org. Um, that's A-B-O-L-I-T-I-O-N-I-S-T lawcenter.org. Um, and on there you'll find um, both the full report as well as an abridged report. The report itself is quite lengthy. It's about 120 pages. Um, so the abridged report is, you know, what it sounds like, a, a slightly shorter version than that, where it's more condensed and we distilled what we believe to be the main points from the report. Beyond that, you know, there's um, the sentencing project has, if you're interested in data, more data on uh, more of a United States perspective. Um, our report focuses primarily on Pennsylvania, but the uh, sentencing project has a number of reports on life sentences. ACLU also has report on life sentences from a few years ago, I believe. Um, so there are a number of, of resources out there. Google is your friend when it comes to getting more information on this. But um, again, if you want to read the report, that is on our website at abolitionistlawcenter.org. I have to admit, and I told you this before we started recording, that uh, I read the abridged version, but I'm glad you mentioned those um, surveys from the folks who are inside because um, that is definitely intriguing. I'd like to go back and, and check out the longer report to see those responses. So thanks for yeah, mentioning yeah. that. I think we excerpt, excerpted them um, in the abridged report a bit, but the yeah, like I said, the uh, the lengthier responses from them that are in section three of the report are you know again if there's if there's one part of the report I would recommend reading it's it's that section where folks are able to go through you know their childhood and adolescent experiences their experiences when they first were sentenced, how they've changed over the years, the things that are most important to them. And it's a really, I think, revealing look at um, inside those who are serving the sentence. And I think, you know, all too often we, the voices of those who are incarcerated aren't um, put front and center in these discussions. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it's our, uh, sort of the, the focus of our work is to center those voices. Well, and Quinn, I appreciate your work and the fact that you took the time to talk today. As you know, the ALC and ACLU of Pennsylvania have a number of cases together, and um, we're just really mm -hmm. grateful to have you guys as an ally. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Andy. I yeah, appreciate you all um, taking the time to talk to me as well. Thank you to Quinn Cousins for his insights. Be sure to check out the report at abolitionistlawcenter.org. You can also find ALC on Twitter at AbolitionistLC and on Facebook. 
That is a wrap of episode 13. The pod is going to take a break for a few weeks, but we'll have new episodes starting again in November. Of course, the news of civil liberties doesn't stop, so be sure to check us out on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at ACLUPA. And go to our website, aclupa.org, to sign up for our email list. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.